So tonight I want to speak from the concerns that you might have or what gets touched when we announce, as we did, that the country has entered into war with Iraq and for the four or five people who are here for two weeks who may not have been present this afternoon, that's part of what we talked about. Could you turn this up just a tiny bit? Part of what happens when you, when we hear news that's so um, terrible, really, is that there's a kind of a shock in the body and in the nervous system and in the spirit. And that has to be respected. The first days, five days ago, of the start of the conflict, uh, I felt very much in shock. And then gradually there's a kind of inner adjustment in some strange way to the truth or the particular circumstances. And yet, it's also terribly difficult. Maybe we shouldn't adjust. It's been difficult for me because I've spent some time in these last number of days in San Francisco, um, which has had the largest, not the largest, but the most active group of peace demonstrators in the country, sort of the epicenter of American peace movement, although it's been throughout the country. And all the energy that one hears, there's outrage and tremendous weeping and a great deal of propaganda just flooding out there, washes of propaganda. And sadness for the oppression and the injustice of it. And then excitement. For some people, it's like a big sporting event. It is, and televisions do that, kind of get people excited. And also, the, there's a way in which I begin to wonder, well, why are we so upset about this war when we weren't so upset a couple of years ago when the same number of people died in the Congo? Or a few years before that, when more people died in East Timor, in Indonesia. Or about the war that's happening in Colombia. My daughter, who's been very involved in organizing high school students over these past weeks, and protests and so forth, the night or the day that the war started, She just sat in the living room and wept for a long time. And she said, we had so many people. We had so many people. We had so much energy, you know, trying to tell the government, the leaders, not just here but around the world, and we failed. And why is it that we failed? 
Um, how could it be if so many people wanted peace that it didn't happen? It was kind of the tears of innocence, really. And yet, and yet, it does happen based on greed and hatred and delusion, it happens. And yet at the same time, we talked after that for a while, my daughter and I, about how one defeat doesn't mean that you stop doing what's right. I have a letter that came from the group of women who went to Washington a few days before the war started. Um, they were part of the group of um, code pink women. They were tired of code orange and code red, all those s- stupid um, terrify you codes. And they decided code pink was better, which meant code human. They were all dressed in pink, and there was a whole group of them. Um, Alice Walker and Maxine Hong Kingston and uh, Susan Griffin, Terry Tempest Williams, Rachel Bagby, a number of them who sat here at Spirit Rock. And there was a whole Washington, D.C. area peace movement. and the Buddhist Peace Fellowship led a big thing in Washington on that day. And then they said on Saturday, um, these 25 women gathered near the White House. Miss Michelle Schock um, sang a song while wearing a burqa made of American flags, um, a song of uh, liberation for the women of the world. And they walked to Lafayette Park, she writes, directly across from the White House, only to find a blockade of police dressed in black, bulletproof vests, rifles, clubs, aged women dressed in pink. (laughs) And they were standing shoulder to shoulder. We were not allowed to enter the park, even though it's a public park, which hours before had a pro-life demonstration in it right up to the White House fence, but not us. We tried to negotiate with the police. It was clear that even they could barely uphold the law that they were being asked to enforce. We made the decision that 25 of us would test the waters. Rachel Bagby, who's a beautiful African-American gospel singer, began singing with all of her voice a gospel song about liberation. And she just wouldn't stop. And all the other 25 of us joined her. And then the women in the background began to sing. And our eyes locked on the African-American policeman in front of us, particularly hers as she sang the gospel songs of liberation. And in a moment you could see the recognition between them because of the descent of their mothers and fathers and grandparents. And one of the men looked at her and quietly stepped to the side and made an opening. And we all walked through and that's how we find out, found ourselves at the White House gates. The police said they would arrest us, but we were there for 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes. They couldn't do it until the federal police came. When the FBI police arrived, 
they arrested all these women and put us in our pink dresses in their wagons. So, on one hand, it's, oh, defeat. And yet, on the other hand, as Robert Mueller, one of the um, leaders of the United Nations in the early years, wrote recently, to have millions of people worldwide speak out for another way beside war is not a defeat. It's the beginning of a real change of consciousness on the earth. But we are asked to enter this world, to return from this sacred space of the temple, with the eyes of an elder, even if it's premature in most of our cases. Premature elders, it's still necessary. The Theravada tradition from which these practices of mindfulness and compassion uh, are born or carried means the way of the elders. And the elders understand the world in a different way than the ordinary understanding. The beginning of the Mahaparinirvana Sutta. At one point, the Buddha was dwelling in Rajgir on the mountain called Vulture's Peak. And a king nearby King Ajatsu decided that he wanted to attack the kingdom of the Vajians. And his chief minister said, Ah, but the Buddha is nearby. Perhaps you could consult him before you go to war. And the king said, That's a fine idea. Why don't you, as chief minister, go and consult the Buddha? And so he did. The minister arrived with all the assembled monks and paid his respects to the Buddha. And then the Buddha asked the minister, can you tell me of these Vajians that you would attack? Do they meet together in regular and frequent assemblies? And the minister said, they do. Well, as long as they have regular and frequent assemblies, they may be expected to prosper and not decline. Have you heard that they meet in harmony and break up in harmony? They do. Blessed one, answered the minister. And have you heard that they follow the teachings of their elders and do not abolish the ancient teachings? And have you heard that they salute the elders among them? And have you heard that they care for those who are vulnerable, the sick, the weak, the wives and daughters of the kingdom? They do. And do they respect and revere the shrines of nature, and the lands around them. Indeed, they do. And then the Buddha looked and said, as long as they do so, they may be expected to prosper and not decline. (laughs) And the minister went back to his king and said, no way, war is going to work with these people. What is at the root of this text is the understanding that ordinary people look at results and the wise look at conditions. What are the conditions that create war? Greed, hatred, delusion, oppression, racism, exploitation. 
And then what do we have to do in the human heart and in the common heart to change those conditions? The country of Sri Lanka has been in a terrible civil war for the last 17 years, primarily between the Hindu Tamil people and the Buddhist uh, Lankan people. Recently this year, a peace truce was brokered between the warring factions. And the Gandhi of Sri Lanka, A.T. Ariratana, this very wonderful and inspired leader, called together a huge group of his followers, hundreds of thousands of people who met after the peace truce was announced. And he presented to them from the Sarvodia Buddhist peace group that he heads a plan which was, which is, I have it in my hand here, a 500 year peace plan. When I heard this, I got chills actually. He said it took us 500 years to create the suffering and conflict that are happening on this land. And so, It will take us 500 years to change the causes and conditions so we can truly live equitably and peacefully with one another. And here is what we need to do in year one, in year two, in year five, in year ten, in year fifty. And then we need to have a council after a hundred years and see what's done and what's not done, and then a council in two hundred years. That is the eyes and the heart of an elder. For me, when I despair looking at the injustice and the suffering of the world, thinking about stopping this war or the last war or the next war, because, you know, if we stop this war, those of us who might wish to, a few years down the road, there'll be the next war. There'll be the new enemy. There'll be the new use for all those weapons that are sold worldwide. And I've become very interested, as some of you may be, in uh, a different mythology, a different imagination. War is the failure of imagination, of human imagination. How can we see the world in a different way? And one of the groups that I've become involved with that find quite inspiring is the nonviolent peace force movement. In 1999 in The Hague, there were 10,000 activists from around the world who came together to share the lessons of the last century. People from the Philippines who'd helped to overthrow the Marcos regime. People from Central America, from Guatemala, Salvador, people from Central Asia, people from all over, sharing their understanding. And out of it was born the beginning creation of what will be a worldwide standing army of initially 10,000 Peace Force members who are paid and ready and trained to go into any situation where conflict starts to brew 
They would go to Sarajevo or Rwanda or such places, but early, before it gets to war, 5,000 on a side, and be witnesses and accompaniment to those people to safeguard them, and teach conflict resolution skills. And the way I see it is maybe it will take 100 years or 500 years. And maybe a hundred years ago, or a hundred fifty years ago, when it was still completely acceptable in most of the world to buy and sell human beings as slaves with chains and irons and so forth. And now it's not so acceptable anymore. It's changed. There still is some slavery, economic slavery, different kinds. There is. But we don't do it in the same way anymore. There has been an evolution. And somehow there is an evolution that's asked of us as well in understanding how we live together with our differences. It's tough. I mean, here we are sitting together in this beautiful environment with compatible people, and yet we've had our differences, haven't we? The person who sits near you, who makes too much rustling with their coat, or the person that does their work meditation with you that's too fast or too slow. You know those differences? The one who wants the window open when you want it closed here. And yet we know there's another way. It's said in the time of the Buddha, in another occasion, the Buddha had learned that a king in the kingdom nearby to his own father's kingdom was planning to make war. And this was a king who was also a disciple of the Buddha. People asked the Buddha, please go to this king and try to talk him out of battle. And the Buddha went to visit this king and tried every way he could to speak of peace. The king wouldn't hear of it. Got his armies together and the Buddha went back. And as the king entered the, the kingdom of the Buddha's father with his armies going down the road in the middle of the day in the hot sun in India, seated in the driest, hottest part of the land, right, was the sort of desert border between this king's country and that of the Buddha's people. The Buddha was seated under a big dead tree in the full blast of the hot Indian sun, absolutely still. And the king and his army came by and looked at the Buddha and said, what are you doing there, blessed one? And he said, even here in the driest part of this earth, in the blazing heat of the day, my heart is cool and sweet because I sit on this which is my native earth, my native land. And I love it so much that I will sit here even as you go by. And somehow the Buddha's words pierced the heart of this king. And he thought to himself, if these people love this earth so deeply, I better not make war on them. And he went back and the war was averted. Part one. Part two is sometime later there was some conflict between the two countries. The Buddha again tried to broker the peace. The king again didn't listen. The Buddha again went out and sat under the tree. And this time the king came by with his great armies and war horses and all of that. Saw the Buddha there, said, I see you're there again, and continued on and made war. 
Sometimes it works to act and makes a difference, and sometimes it doesn't. And there are two dimensions in our practice, that which is eternal, in which we sit anyway. We sit with the timeless. And that in which we act, the immediate, precious response of serving the world as best we can. But it's not up to us and our wishes. It is out of causes and conditions that things arise and things pass away. The Bodhisattva, the being who is committed to compassion in this world no matter what, quiets her mind, opens her heart, sets her compass on compassion and wakefulness, and enters whatever realms are necessary, the heaven realms, the human realms, the realms of the hungry ghosts, the animal realms, the hell realms, and says, yes, there is another way. My teacher, Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, he led peace marches through Cambodia for the last many years of the Cambodian conflict, chanting passages of peace, and they were shot at and grenaded, and he just did it. When we were together in the Cambodian refugee camps, I've often told this story, he was invited by the UNHCR, the High Commission on Refugees in that area, to build a Buddhist temple in the biggest camp, which he made just out of bamboo platforms and a bamboo roof. But because it was a camp with a lot of underground Khmer Rouge, they said, all underground in the camp, 100,000 people, if any of you go to this temple, when we get out of here, you will be killed. Khmer Rouge had burned temples and villages, destroyed so much. So when the day to open the temple came, and the bell was struck, the gong that was hung in the middle of the camp, the central square, we didn't know how many people would come. 25,000 people came out to sit around the square. And you look in their eyes, and it was one old grandmother and her surviving grandson, or one old uncle and two nieces. Destruction of so much of the country. And they sat, and then it was time for Gosananda to give his teachings. And I thought, what can you say to people who've lost so much? who've suffered so deeply. And he looked up, and his eyes were kind of wet with tears out of the faces of all these beings. And he began to chant in Pali, Sanskrit, Cambodian, the chants that these people had not heard for ten years of devastation and war and holocaust and the burning of temples. And they all began to chant with him. And the chant that he chose was that simple verse from the Metta Sutta. Hatred never ceases by hatred, 
but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And as he chanted it over and over, the whole group began to chant it. And it was as he looked out as if he was speaking a truth that was even bigger than their sorrow. This is the eternal law, no matter what. This is true. Sometimes the Bodhisattva speaks the truth in simple words. Sometimes the Bodhisattva is silent. The grandfathers and grandmothers just sit, as the Buddha did under that tree. Yes, a few nights ago, there were the Oscars and Hollywood did its thing. You didn't miss much. A few really strange dresses, right? But also, they cut down on the glitz a little bit, you know, because of the war. Um, There were a few people who got up there, as you would hope and expect. Dustin Hoffman, who spoke about peace. Susan Sarandon, who got up and made a peace sign and said, I just have to speak my heart. Michael Moore, who won Best Director, Best Documentary for Bowling for Columbine, who asked all the other documentary filmmakers to come on the stage with him, and then said, we who make documentary films try to tell the truth in a world that doesn't want to hear it. He said, and I'd like to speak about what is happening now, and I'd like to speak directly to our president, who was made president in a fictitious election, and is a fictitious president, and is now creating war for fictitious reasons. And then he held up his Oscar and he said, shame on you, President Bush. That was Michael Moore. Sometimes it's the speaking of truth, and sometimes it's silent. But we all have within us that place of wisdom, the place of the elder. My teacher, Ajahn Shah, called it the one who knows. Yes, the society tries to put us to sleep you're going to go back out to propaganda land pretty soon. It's just how it is. The best adjusted person in modern society is the person who's not dead and not alive. Remember this? Just numb, a zombie. This is from Ann Wilson Schaefe. For if you're dead, you can't work for the society. But if you're fully alive, you constantly say no to many of the processes of the society, the racism, the polluted environment, the nuclear threats, the arms race, drinking unsafe water, and eating carcinogenic foods. Thus, it is in the interest of society to promote those things that take the edge off, keep us busy with our fixes, keep us slightly numbed out and zombie-like. In this way, modern consumer society itself functions as an addict. That's the one who forgets. Poppies, poppies, sleep, you know, remember from The Wizard of Oz? Poppies. And you can see it in yourself, in ourselves, that 
part that wants to go to sleep. And yet, and yet within us also lives the one who knows. In the Hindu tradition, it's said that when a child is about to be born, the song it sings in the womb is, Oh, do not let me forget who I am. And then after the birth, the song changed to, Oh dear, I'm forgetting already. But the one who knows in us knows that life is short and keeps, as Don Juan spoke to Castaneda, death as an advisor. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you and it always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, (laughs) or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you even catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you. And the one who knows, knows this. Death is an advisor. My wife knows it my beloved wife, Liana, there's something that's just wise in her that makes her say goodbye every time I go out and every time our daughter leaves home because she knows that this time is this time and you don't know. And it's a beautiful way to live with this wisdom. We could try to forget, you know, the story of the Sufi holy man who came to the palace of the sultan outside of Baghdad and pounded on the door and the guards opened and said, hey, ask that guy inside who runs this place if I can stay for a few nights in the motel. And the guard went running inside and said, there's this mad Sufi holy man outside who's just called your beautiful palace a motel and wants to stay here. Naturally, he was dragged in, you know, and pulled in front of the sultan who said, how dare you insult, you know, this great palace of mine. And the Sufi holy man said, in this place, this place that you call this place of yours, this place... um, where you live, uh, who lived here before you? Oh, my father's. What happened to him? Oh, he died. And who lived here before him? Oh, my grandfather, the great sultan so-and-so. Yeah, what happened to him? Oh, he died. And before him, who lived here? Oh, my great-great-grandfather, he built this place. What happened to him, that sultan? Oh, of course he died. And the holy man fixed the sultan with his gaze and said, in this place where people lodge for a brief while and move on, did you say it was not a motel? (laughs) And the sultan bowed and said, yes, the holy man can stay. The one who knows sees not just with compassion, but with the eyes of equanimity this mysterious and vast earth in which things are born 
and come to be and pass away. We know this. There's a work of art in Colorado that a friend of mine visited called the Salt Monument. And I don't know who the artist is, but she made a beautiful wooden room, a very large one, two stories high. And in the middle of it, suspended a lucite plastic crystal about eight or ten feet high, shaped just like a salt crystal, and filled two-thirds of the way up with tiny little salt crystals called the Salt Monument. And it's on uh, two steel rods, and it turns very slowly once a day. And in it are 6.3 billion salt crystals, one for each human being on the earth. And every morning as the pujari, as the keeper of this temple, she comes in and does a chant and then goes to the bottom of the salt, this great salt crystal, and opens the little spout and takes out 200,000 crystals for the 200,000 people that have died that day and places them on a special altar. And then she climbs up on this wooden staircase to the top and opens the top of the crystal and pours in 250,000 salt crystals for all those human beings that were born that day. And lining the walls are little um, vials. A very small one is all the friends that you have. A slightly bigger one is all the people you will meet in your life, right? This one, the average number of people in 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 a major American city, you know, And you start to see in perspective, here's this huge crystal containing one salt grain for every human being. The one who knows in us realizes that we are part of a dance that goes back to our ancestors and forward to our children's children's children. Even if you don't have children, you have children. You know what I mean. We are in this great dance together. And the equanimity of the one who knows, who sees the changing of the seasons, is balanced with compassion. The compassion that every crystal is unique and beautiful and precious. If you had but a few days left in your life, who would you call? What would you say? And why do you wait? The one who knows in us sees how precious and unique each being is because we are only here for a short time. The one who knows in us rests in the eternal, in the changing of the seasons, the paradox of the world, the realms, the dance of the opposites, joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, even war and peace. 
Plato said, only the dead know the end of war. How's that? 2,500 years ago, still true. The one who knows sees that this earth is night and day and sweet and sour and birth and death. It is woven into the fabric of life itself. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who writes, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary just to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? The one who knows sees that we are woven in the ocean of tears and the unspeakable beauty. O nobly born, this is your inheritance, this earth with its joys and sorrows. Rest in that which is eternal as this earth turns each day and as the seasons of your own experience rise and pass. From Juan Ramon Jimenez, he writes a simple poem, Yo no soy yo, I am not I. I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I am indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. The one who knows rests in that eternal truth of our nature as the dance of the opposites play through the body and heart and mind. The one who knows in us, the wise one, the elder, sees how much we need each other that no one can do it alone. We don't exist alone. We are all in it together. Chinese dissident Mr. Liu King served 11 years in Weinan Number 2 prison in Shaanxi province. During this time, Mr. Liu was forced to sit on a wooden stool eight inches high without moving for ten hours a day. If he moved in any way or talked to anyone around him, he was beaten. To end his suffering and assure a successful future, he needed only to sign a statement without naming anyone, saying he had made mistakes in his thinking. Against all odds, for eleven years, Mr. Liu King refused to sign. And on what basis did Mr. Liu King rely? What kept him from signing that paper? 
when he was released and was asked about it, he said it was simple. I sat there, and as I thought of the possibility of signing, before me arose the faces of my family and friends and community, and I knew I could not sign. I could not let them down. Thich Nhat Hanh, when the crowded refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. The one who knows feels, senses, knows the connection, the web of life. the Sangha of all beings. The one who knows in this mystery remembers that we cannot possess things, our goods, our ideas, our children. Socrates, you know, used to like to go to the market, even though he lived very simply. And after a while, some of his disciples said, why is it that you so much, you know, spend so much time going to the market? And what is it about the marketplace? And he said, oh, I love to go and see all the many things I am happy without. (laughs) The one who knows in us realizes we cannot possess. What we can do is love. It's not how much you get that matters, but how much you give. The one who knows in us sees the world with the eyes of the beloved, the mother of the Buddhas. This is her, Mahaprajnaparamita, the mother of all Buddhas. She's the one, she represents the the dark, the eternal, the, the void, the, the, the fertile void out of which all things, the Buddha's, the awakening of the world is born. She was made by a friend of ours, the, one of the greatest sculptors in Bali for our temple, and he did a whole wonderful great ceremony to bring the spirit of Mahaprajnaparamita into her before she was sent here. But if you have a chance, look at her hair. And I turned her around so you can see how beautiful she is. She carries a kind of beauty that's invisible to us, but is really beautiful, even though no one remembers. It's still there. The one who knows, the mother of the world in you, sees everybody as is done in in every traditional and native and wise culture, as your relative. You go to Thailand or Burma or Tibet or Guatemala or any other place or Africa, and it's brother and sister and cousin and uncle. It's even Uncle George Bush, right? And it's grandfather Saddam, I'm sorry to say. They're all our relatives. And you know how it is with relatives, you know? 
Some of them are hard to take. <laughs> but they're our relatives. And the one who knows remembers this. The one who knows in us is already the Bodhisattva. You don't have to become the Bodhisattva. Your compass is already set. You know what's right. You know what's beautiful. You know what's true and just. The one who knows doesn't have to run around a lot trying to make the world different, but listens really deeply to what is asked of us. My favorite listening story in the Bodhisattva, or one of them, is about Vinoba Bhavi. Vinobaji was the chief disciple of Mahatma Gandhi in India. And after Indian independence, when Gandhiji was assassinated, the whole Gandhian movement fell apart. All those people who'd worked for years for independence. And there was this whole big creating of the nation of India and Pakistan. And after a few years, those who'd followed Gandhi began to realize there was still a lot of work to do. Independence, turns out, is just the beginning. As Nelson Mandela said, the truth is we are not yet free. We've merely achieved the freedom to become free. And they realized that. So they decided to have a great big congress of all the Gandhian followers. And they wanted Vinoba to lead them. He said, no, he wouldn't go. He said, please come. Please come and lead us. He said, no, it's over. We can't recreate it. Don't hold on to the past. Gandhi's gone. Something new has to happen. And they begged him. And finally he said, after a long time, all right, I will come. Where's the conference? Oh, it's in Hyderabad, halfway across India. I'll come, but you must delay it six months. I will walk there and I will listen. And so he started on foot with a few other people from one village to another, one province to another. And partway there, each day he'd come to a new village, he'd sit under the tree in the middle of the village. Every village has a tree, as it should. And the villagers would come out and he'd talk about the government and the new nation and Gandhi and just listen. And he saw the poverty and the sorrow and in one village there was this group of untouchables who said, we have not enough food to eat. And he said, well, grow food. You should plant gardens, plant your fields, you know, dig, dig wells, and make the earth abundant. And they said, but we are untouchables. We have no land. We can't do this. We're not allowed to have land. And he said to them, when I go back to New Delhi, I will talk to Prime Minister Nehru myself and get a law passed, giving land to the untouchables. I will work on this to help you. He went to sleep, and that night as he slept, he tossed and turned. He didn't sleep well at all. In the morning, under the tree, he called the villagers together again, and his eyes were watery with tears. He said, I thought about it honestly, and I'm not sure I really can help you. Because even if we do get the law passed in this new government, there are some good people in Delhi. 
By the time the land gets from the states to the provinces and the provinces to the districts and the districts to the village and all the leaders, he said, I know how it works here. Everybody's going to take their piece of it and by the time it gets down to you, there'll be nothing left. I don't really know what to do. And he sat there. <laughs> and then there was in the background this big picture of Mahatma Gandhi kind of honoring him in these meetings. One man stood up and he said, Oh, he said, In honor of Gandhiji, I have land. One of the wealthy men of the village. How many families are there here? Eighteen families. I will give five acres apiece, 90 acres, so each family can have land. And Vinobhaji said, no, you may not do so. Go home, speak to your children, speak to your wife, those who will inherit your land, and make sure with them too that it is okay to give this land away or you will make the conditions for conflict later in this village. He went back and spoke with them, and they said, yes, it's okay. He had a lot more land than that. (laughs) So the 80 acres were given. Big celebration that evening. Next day, Vinobhaji walks to the next village, sits under the tree in the middle of the village, people. Here's the same sad stories. We are poor. We have not enough to eat. Why don't you grow your own food? We can't. We're untouchables. He told the story of the village before. And he told it in such a beautiful way with the big picture of Mahatma Gandhi behind him that another wealthy man stood up and said, how many untouchable families have we? Ten, twelve, I will give more. You know, a little showing off here. I will give 120 acres. (laughs) Vinobhaji sent him back to his family and then he returned and the land was offered. And by the time Vinobhaji walked the six months to the conference, He had collected 2,200 acres of land for the poor. He told the story to the multitude of people that had worked with Gandhiji. And that was the beginning of the Indian Bhutan land reform movement. And out of that conference, for 10 years, the followers of Vinobhaji walked on foot through every state and every province and every district of India, and in the course of 10 years, collected 14 million acres of land that was peacefully transferred to the poorest families in India. It was the biggest peaceful transfer of land that was recorded in that part of Asia ever. And all from his saying, I won't go to your conference. I have to walk and listen and find the right way. O nobly born, you too have your way. And it is completely unique in the 6.3 billion crystals in that salt monument. In the 6.3 billion human beings, there was no one else like you. And there never has been in all of eternity. And there never will be. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? And so what is asked of you is that elder in you, that one who knows, must listen inside. 
and find your way in this world. The bodhisattva in you that turns her compass north toward compassion no matter what, or his compass. And within our lineage of elders, I mean, there are so many wonderful elders in every tradition, the African elders and the Indian elders and the the elders of this land on which we sit. Within our lineage of the elders, there's a Natapindika who was a great merchant. He was a, a businessman. He was the great wise businessman around the Buddha who covered the the most beautiful park in India with gold coins to buy it for the Buddha so that a monastery could be built there. Cartloads of gold coins. And the Buddha didn't say to Anattapindaka he should ordain and become a monk. He said, use your skill and your wealth that you have in this world to make the world beautiful. And that was what Anattapindaka did for the monastery, for the monks and nuns, and for the people of the world. And his modern equivalent, I think of as somebody like Ubakin, who was a great master in Burma, teacher of some of, of some of our teachers, who was a politician in the first cabinet of Burma. He had several cabinet ministries, and he insisted the treasury department, for example, he would go in every morning and make sure that everyone in the treasury department sat in meditation for half an hour and then took the five precepts to not kill and steal and lie before they began their day of work serving the people of Burma. That was his way to do it. Then Ajahn Jamnian, our elder who comes here at the end of um, May and June every year, who's a shaman and a forest monk and a meditation master of loving-kindness, is a peacemaker. The worst war and fighting in the 15 years in Thailand happened in his province between the communist uh, revolutionaries and the government. And he spent most of these years going between the two sides, trying to broker a truce, until finally... Um, they would go into battle and they saw that they were all wearing the same protective amulets that he had made for them so that they wouldn't die and so that they would keep their hearts strong and peaceful. And they saw the other side had them too. And eventually he was able to broker a peace and bring down um, some 15,000 people out of the mountains uh, where they were reintegrated into the society, put down their weapons without any recrimination. That was his way. And he's here, and he just smiles most of the time, and he says, oh, it's just a dance. Empty, empty. Happy, happy, he says. That's his, he, those are his only two English words. Empty, empty. Happy, happy. Empty. And he's a peacemaker monk. And then there's grandmothers like Deepama, this wonderful elder in Calcutta, who became a great saint only after two of her three children died and her husband on top of that. And she became so sick at heart and so ill that she had to crawl her way up the steps of the meditation temple. She couldn't even walk, but she knew she had to do something to save her life. And she became so dedicated that she became both a fantastic yogi and meditation student and teacher, 
but also she became an inspiration for the whole of the Buddhist community in Calcutta. She lived in her little apartment, you know, and you'd go there and she'd cook food for you. You know, ask how was your bowel movements, right? I mean, this is an important question in India, right? And how are you feeling? How is your mother? That was part of her way of teaching meditation. And then she'd say, so, can you sit tonight for three hours or four? And I'd say, maybe I'll sit for three. She said, yeah, without moving is what she meant, right? Just sit down and not get up. All right, now six hours. You can do it, you know. She would just, she had such, she had kind of this steel inside and this lovely grandmother demeanor on the outside. So many elders. Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. The kind of steadiness, steadfastness, just to stay there and speak of truth and loving kindness and justice and not move, not leave. Even when her husband was dying, when her family was terrible difficulty, they said, you can leave Burma, but we can't assure you that you could come back. said, I cannot leave. My love of justice and truth is greater even than my love of my family. That was her way. Dalai Lama, you know, he came here a couple of years ago for this wonderful gathering of Buddhist teachers. Then he stayed in a hotel in San Francisco for some other meetings. And before he left, great big hotel, he called, he asked them to call all the people who worked at the hotel out together. You know, the Latina women, the maids who were there doing the carpets, Chicano, Chicanas in the, in, you know, upstairs and the people, the, the Filipinos who were working in the kitchen and all the different people who don't usually get seen at the Fairmont or whatever fancy hotel he was saying. I want them all out. And they all came out in the courtyard. And then he went down the line and he held each person's hand and looked in their eyes for a moment and he said, thank you to every single person that was there, including the Secret Service, all these kind of, you know, guys with the little, you know, the little ear, earphones and guys and gals too are all really kind of buff, you know, guys standing around in their suits and dark glasses watching for whatever because the State Department has this whole retinue that follows him. And the Secret Service after that, they said, would you please take, can, can we take our picture with you? And they all got around him. He thanked every one of them. And they all smiled. And the woman who ran the Secret Service here said, she said, I've seen them all. She said, you know, I've done the details for the prime ministers and the, you know, Prince Charles and, you know, uh, the president of France and the Pope and so. She said, I've never seen anybody like this Dalai Lama guy, you know. <laughs> He's really great, she said. So those are certain ways. Those are their ways. But you can't imitate them. You're not the Dalai Lama, and you're not Deepama, or Ajahn Jamnin, or Natapindika, or Thich Nhat Hanh. Or you are yourself. You, the richest woman, the richest man on the face of the earth, has been going around begging looking for something, when the jewels of the world are sewn into your robes. O nobly born, remember who you really are. Rest 
in this place of wisdom that you carry from before your birth. And at this retreat, even in despair and fear and pain, the measure of sorrows that each of us has been given to carry, you can remember the moments of generosity, the breaks in the clouds, the gaps between our fears and confusions, and the innate goodness and spaciousness and freedom of your heart. It is your treasure. And as you leave this temple and go back into the world, stay dedicated to that one who knows. Keep that compass set in your heart on freedom and compassion for every being you meet. Trust it. Carry it with dignity, the dignity that is yours. Entrust yourself to the Dharma. And as the Buddha said, if it were not possible to free your heart from entanglement in greed, hatred, delusion, fear, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible to free your heart from entanglement in greed, hatred, delusion, and fear, I teach you to do so, and you can indeed find that to be true. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.